How would you feel if you had a billion dollar opportunity right in front of you and you squandered it? That's what we talked about this week with Hithen Shah, CEO of FYI and former CEO of Kissmetrics. Hithen coined the term my billion dollar mistake in an iconic blog post several years ago. In it, he detailed how his team at Kissmetrics was three years ahead of the market, well-funded, had great customers, and ultimately lost the lead. It was a lesson in management, leadership, and self-awareness. And that's what we talked about this week. We dug deep specifically into lessons learned from that experience, but also broadened it out to his observations of what's going on in the market today. How are founders in 2021 approaching fundraising? What are the common mistakes they're making? And what, if any, downstream impacts will the abundance of capital have on the early stage ecosystem? Hitan, welcome. Pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me. Hitan, excited to have you on the show today and, and dive pretty deep into lessons learned, scaling, self-awareness, and, and we'll talk a little bit about what you're up to now. But before we jump in, you know, give our listeners a little bit more information on your background. Yeah, uh, I've been building software businesses since about 2004, 2005. So it's been about 15 years uh, if you're in 2020 right now. Uh, and uh, Or 20 if you consider 2020, like another four or five years. Um, so yeah, and, and uh, I've also invested in a whole bunch of different companies, about 150 different companies or advising them. And uh, yeah, so I, I've been through many different uh, journeys of um, starting businesses, uh, raised money for, for, for them as well, and helped a whole bunch of other people do it. So just really, really in the sort of tech world, so to speak, all my companies since after college have been tech companies. Uh, really focused on building uh, software. Yeah, and even though you've been in the tech world, you've run, you know, you've run and started different types of companies, right? Crazy Egg, I think, which is still ongoing. I think has yep. always been fully bootstrapped. You know, Kissmetrics, of course, was venture back. Yep. Just talk a little bit more about the experience, right, of of running tech businesses, running both types of businesses, right, and and how you think through the framework of choosing you know, what's appropriate for which type of business? Yeah, um, I think uh, people tend to raise money for personal reasons uh, instead of business reasons. Uh, typically, they'll raise money because they don't know any other way or try to raise money because they don't know any other way to build the business they're trying to build. They get themselves convinced that they need more money in order to build it or create the business or even like get to a certain milestone. And uh, that's usually the reasoning uh, why people raise money. That's like the number one reason. It's like the thing to do or something that you feel like you need in order to grow your business. That was the case. I'd say that there was a lot of truth to that maybe 10 years ago where a lot of different types of businesses, you'd want to go raise money, uh, whether it's because you, you want to network or you think you need money to go hire people and, and kind of build a business. It all sounds very reasonable. The companies that are most successful raising money um, for the right reasons are the ones that are able to say, hey, we're going to take your money, the money you give us into this business, put it back in the business, and we have a predictable model for how we're going to grow this business based on that capital. And that's really what you're trying to get to with your funding rounds. And your pre-seed round or your seed round, if you're going to do early stage rounds, don't necessarily have that same sort of narrative. So you're essentially on the earliest stages until a series A, basically doing R&D uh, and people are paying for your R&D. And that reality explains 
all things about early stage startup fundraising from the thing like, oh, <clears throat> go get a whole bunch of solo capitalists or individual angels and do a party round because those people are people that are probably going to believe in you at this stage while an institutional investor, you know, that usually does series A's but is dabbling in seed and pre-seed, which is like what all of them are doing now, they get the formulaic or at least seemingly formulaic growth models and an ability to think of the business that way. They don't necessarily get the earliest stages. Um, and a lot of the funds that are focused on early stage, they obviously get it, but there's obviously going to be a limited amount of those. So you get all these different sort of over time, we've got all these different ways of thinking about who to raise money from uh, and, and those kind of things. We don't have as much knowledge about when to raise money. And now there's a lot of examples out there, not just like really famous ones like Atlassian or MailChimp uh, and others, but we have a lot of examples of companies that have been self-funded. Most people would call it bootstrapped. I call it self-funded that don't get capital early and instead build for the customer and are basically customer backed in terms of using the money they get from customers to operate the business, which I know sounds kind of pithy and simple, but at the end of the day, most people tend to think they need capital when they first start out instead of tending to think they can just build something and get customers and grow the business and then maybe raise capital later. So this whole idea of when to raise money, when not to raise money, I think has over time evolved into, there's a lot of different capital sources at the earliest stages that are much different than what how it used to be. It used to be that you'd have to go to an official venture capitalist that has a firm, has a bunch of partners, or at least a couple, and get, a, get an early stage round from them and they lead the round. Now you're seeing a lot of sort of non-institutional led rounds because there's no lead and this is another reason why there's a concept of pre-seed <laughs> um, and there's even pre-seed institutional funds and investors now. So in short, like the earliest stages are not about your product in a repeatable model. It's more about whatever traction you have so far. And it could be as simple as I built this before at my last company as an engineer and I came out and decided to start a business around this idea. And then obviously you're gonna have a whole bunch of people that probably believe in you, uh, hopefully. And you basically are raising money based on your relationships. And so I think there's no real heuristic or, or framework for like when to raise money early on. It's more like when you can get it, if you think you want it. So you're mo mostly wanting to determine, do you really need the capital? Is that the way you wanna fund your business? And the reason I say that is my belief and my, my way of thinking about this is if you raise a pre-seed or a seed round, a really early stage round, your job is to get to the next round. And the way you get to that next round is hitting milestones that are about the company and about making progress with customers or users, whatever your business is. That's the key. And so you're using this money for R&D until about a series A. If it's not for R&D and you're using it to grow the business, that's wonderful, but that's typically not the case. So essentially, in the most ideal world, you wanna raise capital when you know what you're gonna do with the money and how it's gonna actually lead to revenue for the business. And that's not typically how people think about raising money. They think about raising money like, I need the money in order to build this business. And that's simply just not true. There's a lot of businesses that are built out there these days that don't require money up front because the founders are spending the time doing the work and getting customers and getting paid. So that contrast, I think, is something important to point out. 
And at the end of the day, I believe funding is really about the ability to use capital ahead of your revenue. And so you're just trying to think about how am I going to use this capital and how do I frame it and tell a story and a narrative that's true that shows how this, where this money is going to go and what it's going to do for the business. So what's the root of driving that thought process, right? Do you think it's location? Do you think it's, I mean, you know, proximity from, you know, I, I ran the business side of a, a startup in the Bay Area. We'd raised about 15 million and candidly, it felt like at times fundraising was easier you know, it was an easier and more glamorous problem to solve um, with, a, with a pretty defined outcome in the right networks versus, you know, focusing, doubling down on our customers and really focusing on how to build a business. What do you think drives that? Um, you, you alluded to in the, in the beginning part of what you were saying was a lot of it, you know, typically uh, ruminates around personal, you know, personal perspectives or personal preferences, et cetera. What, what do you think is the driver of that? Because I buy actually what you're saying. I think it's, you know, I think it's incredibly logical and sound, but the, but the behavior pattern. Every, 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 everything that you hear in the news and all that is about funded companies and funding yep. rounds. And so it, it's in the air and it's not just in the air in the Bay area. It's in the air globally and venture capitalists take people's money, uh, the, the limited partners and go invest that money and with the idea of getting a return. And so there's a lot of, and obviously like the, not every company you fund as an investor ends up being successful and has uh, re even returns your money. And so you're basically in, a, in, 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 in the atmosphere, especially seed and pre-seed of gambling. We're all gambling. The founders are gambling with their time and the investors are gambling with other people's money. And some of those gambles end up working out. When you put that lens on it and you're a founder, you have to decide whether you want to play in that game, which is as close to gambling as it gets legally. And that's really the framework I would use. And the reason though is because this whole idea of that game is what's popularized. So of course, people are naturally going to go be like, oh, I'm going to do a startup. I'm going to raise money and I'm going to be the next Airbnb. <clears throat> that's the narrative. Um, and that's what drives people. Also, you know, uh, just as an anecdote, I was talking to a founder. He's raising a seed round. It was actually this morning. And um, I got introduced by a good friend of mine. I typically wouldn't have taken this specific call just because of the market they're in. But it's a good friend of mine. And he's like, hey, this founder is really interesting. And the thing I found really fascinating was he's early stage, um, you know, has some minor sort of traction, uh, decent enough product. Um, talking to him and he's he he has been used to talking to investors not used to talking to somebody who might be an operator and a founder like me and someone who i told him hey i'd just love to be helpful on this call i don't know if i'm going to invest it's unlikely but i was told that i should talk to you and i'm sure i can be helpful uh today and i'll do that sometimes because it's either a favor for a friend or i think the business is interesting it's just not interesting for me to invest in it and the reason i mentioned that is the founder spent an incredible amount of time talking to me as another founder about his vision and what he believes this business will become in some amount of time that's not even a year from now or two years from now, maybe not even three years from now. And when I was talking to him, I was like, oh, you know, the thing that I realized in my head was like, he thinks he needs to talk about the future in that way in order to convince investors to buy into whatever he's doing. And what I found interesting was when I talk to investors, they care less about what the founder is saying 
and they care much more about what the founder and the team has done and how they think about the problems they're solving. And that's not quite what he was doing. He was talking about the vision. And a lot of that stuff is what you read when you go online and you read about these companies that are now like unicorns or whatever you want to call it, billion dollar valuation, et cetera. And you read about their vision and you read about this reality that might be 10 years after they started the company. So I, I, I wish I remembered this and I would, and, and, you know, I would send him, um, I, I, what I wanted to do was there's this Mark Zuckerberg video. It's from 10 years ago, I believe. And it talks about, uh, and he talks like he, he's in uh, shorts and um, uh, kind of uh, undershirt, a white undershirt. He's drinking a beer in a Dixie cup. And what he says is extremely instructive on how to think about your business early on. And the short of it is in that video, he demonstrates how customer centric, user centric that they are at Facebook. And they were from back then, even when he was drinking a beer, doing an interview with actually some person from, from another country who came and just wanted to interview him when they were, they I think were renting a house in Stanford. And this was obviously 10 years ago, I think. Um, it, it's incredible when you look at that and, and, and I hear a founder and I'm like, well, like you can understand why Facebook, regardless of your opinion of the company has been successful. Cause from the earliest days, this founder just cared about the customer and spoke of the business with a customer centric mindset. A good example of what he did at towards the end of this like six, seven minute video, I think it was shorter than that, is basically explain how when the, when the sort of uh, interviewer asked about world domination and things like that, Mark Zuckerberg was like, well, we're here to build this. And this is a college, he didn't say it like this, but this is what I got out of it, a college network focused on solving problems for colleges. But the thing he said after that was basically that as they open up to new types of people, the product has to evolve. And that I don't hear early stage founders recognize that early on and internalize it and then speak of their company from that standpoint. Instead, they're speaking about what they think they need to, which is what this company might be five years from now or 10 years from now when like they're probably going to be wrong and almost anything they say about that right now compared to talking about what they're learning and how things are going and what the milestones they've already hit are and what the next ones are gonna hit are. And again, not a knock on the founder, but that is a first time founder, uh, kind of I think recently out of college within the last year or two, and he's trying to do a startup and has done actually, I think an incredible job so far compared to most companies I see uh, about the same as, as the, the, the ones that I think are sort of worthy of investing in, except for this one thing where it's like the way to describe the company is kind of shaped completely by the, the things that you, he's hearing in the outside world about these companies that are not at the stage that his company's at. And I find that kind of instructive for explaining kind of the difference between how to think about it and how to basically think about the, what you read and internalize that instead of thinking about your business and internalizing the value you're bringing to customers and how you believe that's gonna evolve over time. There, there's actually a very big difference between those two. And when I um, sort of poked at him a little bit about some of this stuff, um, he was receptive, but there's almost a default. I'm he, 
he either thinks he's talking to an investor and pitching them, or he's just in the mode of thinking about the vision and things like that, instead of actually thinking about um, the customer <clears throat> and what to do for them and how their needs are going to evolve over time, which is a discussion I was looking to have with him because uh, I felt like I could be helpful there. Uh, so that's where I kept trying to go with it. Um, that's the, the why behind it. We're just surrounded by the almost the opposite of what we should be speaking about and doing in order to make and build successful businesses. What do you think is the downstream impact of that, right? So how does that, you know, what's your, what's your two cents on how that permeates the ecosystem? So you have, you know, you have a whole bunch of founders, let's say, or first time founders that are looking to, you know, either companies that are, you know, not in their stage, right? They're well on their way, you know, or an investor class, right? That, that has a certain, you know, business quite candidly, right? Taking LP money and then investing it in startups. And so dissecting, digesting information in a, in a very certain way, which is different than, you know, founder lens and operator lens, et cetera. What, what, what's that impact on the ecosystem? Does that permeate a class of, you know, a vast majority of professional uh, fundraiser, professional storyteller, but not, you know, true operator builders? What, how do you think about that downstream impact? Yeah, I wouldn't even say he was a professional fundraiser or would turn into one. I just think he thinks that's how he needs to represent himself in his business to basically sell himself in the vision of the, of the future. And I mean, the downstream impact, there is none. It's, it's just the same as what it used to be. There's just more of it. So what you're going to see downstream is basically some of these things fail. Some of these things might get acquired if the acquirers start kind of happening again, which, you know, is debatable. Because um, for a while, a, a bunch of years ago, there's a lot of acquirers and, and folks who are very wealthy because they sold to Airbnb or Pinterest at the right time when nobody knew that those businesses were going to be public and as big as they were going to be. And then, you know, if those folks stayed, they, they made a bunch of money and it was, it was good for everyone, good for the ecosystem. Um, so I think there'll be some, some form of that kind of stuff. Some of these folks will fail. Some of them will go into venture. Some of them will, will succeed. Um, yeah, it, 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 it's just more of the same. I, I literally just see more of the same. I don't think the pattern I'm describing is any different right now than it was five or 10 years ago. It's just the same thing. It's just a little bit more amplified, if not a lot more amplified. And there's more noise in terms of how to do a startup. And the truth is there is no formula. There is no template. Startups aren't paint by numbers. And that's why I'm saying, I think the impact and downstream impact of all this stuff, whether it's more capital early stage uh, and sort of more uh, sort of faster growth. Cause like we're in a world where a lot of folks are on the internet or whatever, whatever you want to say about it, it's still going to be just more of the same. And the more is the key word. There's going to be more founders. There's going to be more founders that go through their journeys. What I'm realizing, and this is kind of the thing that I didn't quite internalize until recently personally, which is the mindset of a new founder is actually exactly the same as when I started. And that kind of blows my mind because I started over 15 years ago, but the mindset is still the same. And I could hear myself from like when I was raising money for Kissmetrics in this guy in terms of how he was speaking about his business. There's parts of it where I was like, yeah, I used to say stuff like that. And I even told him that. I'm like, yeah, I used to say stuff like that, but here's what really happens or here's how that really does play out every time. And stuff like that, meaning like he kept talking about the future as if it was already a reality and there was just a bunch of holes you could poke in it. And I used to do that. And then I realized, and, and this is the way I would... I would sort of explain it. 
I believe that businesses earn the right and founders earn the right to realize their ultimate vision. And that earning the right tweaks the vision over time. Whether you believe in lean startup and problem solving uh, and finding problems and discovering them, or you believe in forging the business and the opportunity you're going after, it doesn't really matter. Those are two different sort of camps supposedly, but at the end of the day, you earn the right to turn into whatever you think you're going to turn into. So what I focus on is what are the milestones required to earn that right? And how can we set those milestones up in such a way that if we're wrong, we can still like adjust. And that's what I would do regardless of how you think about building a business. And that is what I would recommend people do. But in terms of like whether that recommendation is relevant now or 10 years from now or 10 years ago, it will be because it's fundamentally, if you, for lack of a better word, it's a first principle, right? Like you learn as you go and you iterate as you learn. And that's how almost everything that grows and not almost basically everything that grows works in some way, shape or form like that. So yeah, it's a good question, but I don't predict any downstream effect that's any different than before, except that we're just going to see more of all these things. There's going to be more capital. There's going to be more startups and there's going to be more failures and there's going to be more successes as well. I like that framing. I think it also speaks to, you know, what you're alluding to and kind of whether it's lean startup or the other approach, which is, you know, typically more of like the Keith Raboy approach of have a very concentrated vision and, and fund it out of the gate, regardless of that, you know, ultimately it's the mechanics of getting to be able to realize the vision. You have to, you know, markets aren't, you know, Hey, if I capture 1% of this, you know, we'll build a business. That's not how businesses are built. So I, I like that framing. When you think about KISS metrics, um, and I want to talk about, the blog post you wrote, it was titled My Billion Dollar Mistake. It's it's pretty iconic now. And I think there's a lot of lessons packed into it. Kissmetrics was venture backed. Um, let's just set the context, talk a little bit more, you know, about the business, how it came together. I know, as I understand it, in the early days, you know, you definitely went through a few iterations of the product before arriving, you know, at true product market fit. Set the stage, talk a little bit more about the early days, and then I want to dive a bunch into into some of the lessons that you wrote in that piece. Yeah, I mean, the early stage was what I typically see. Um, we definitely took the approach of having a vision for disrupting the analytics market in a specific way because we had found different problems people had. And the simple problem that we had learned with Kissmetrics early, early on, one of the reasons we started the business is that people kept building analytics tools in-house. So that idea never changed. It was always about trying to chase this idea that, and, and this sort of solution focused on this problem we saw in the market. And the problem we saw was that people keep creating analytics tools and building out internal solutions for something that we felt like should be a software. And on the high end, there were companies that were servicing that um, really well and, and enterprise focused. And then on the low end, there was Google Analytics, which was free, but there was no support system around it to help companies actually execute on what they learned with the analytics or implement it correctly, et cetera. And there was a okay ecosystem of partners but it wasn't really strong for at that time back in 2008 for like facebook application de developers for example um, or or folks that were building games and things like that and then back then we also were about to go through the mobile shift in a big way so there's mobile coming online and stuff like that so we made a couple product attempts first one was basically build a tool specifically for facebook apps but 
realized, we realized really quickly, there's not much business there because the folks who were building Facebook apps at the time were just trying to monetize and they weren't as um, sort of focused on uh, analytics prompts because they were just building stuff pretty scrappy and were okay with sort of the internal tooling that they were using, but they had problems that they wanted to solve that we could kind of look at and say, why'd you build that, et cetera. So we built that out, but again, realized really quickly, these people won't pay unless we, we, we find a way to help them make money on ads. That wasn't the business we were in. There were a lot of other folks in that business. Uh, so then we made an iteration where we basically started building a business intelligence tool with charts and graphs and all that. And again, this was back in between 2009 and 2010 when a lot of these tools didn't exist today. Tableau wasn't even the big company that it was, that it is today. Uh, so that felt good. We had a whole bunch of notable customers, including TechCrunch and others, and we were kind of showing them uh, author performance and these, these kind of things like, you know, who's got the most page views and who's got the most comments and stuff like that. It was cool, but that had its own issues where it was going to require a lot of setup and a lot of handholding and a lot of help. Uh, and people just wanted answers. They didn't necessarily want to set up all these sort of business intelligently like sort of dashboards and stuff like that. So really quickly, we sort of took a step back from that and basically realized that there's just something we should dive into because we keep hearing that people build in-house and Google Analytics is the kind of tried and true sort of tool that people are using. So we just doubled down and learning even more about it. And we learned a whole bunch of stuff about very pointed problems that online marketers had who were trying to use Google Analytics to measure conversion funnels and the steps people take to buy. And so that was one of the aha moments. And then we found a few other very specific things like you can't see actual email addresses in your analytics tool and see who's doing what. And that was kind of the crux of what we ended up building. We also, there's like a real-time report in analytics that exists today in most tools. We had originally built one for debugging uh, to help people kind of solve a problem we saw, which was implementation of analytics is pretty, uh, was pretty clunky at the time where you had to go implement the analytics, pray that it, you did it right, and then wait 24 hours before you could actually verify that the data is correct. And that just felt absurd to us. So we built a bunch of these things and we innovated on these things based on what we learned were the problems to solve in the market that actually had less to do with the way people were building things in-house beyond like a few fundamental things and more to do with deficiencies in the analytics tool, Google Analytics specifically at the time that was causing people to essentially not be able to set up their, their analytics in a way that they can measure the business and the things that they really cared about. And that journey itself was kind of like about an 18 month ish journey, 12 to 18 months of iterating in what, what I was earlier calling essentially R and D time. And we had already sort of built a bunch of stuff before we even raised money and we were raising money on what we originally built. But then as we got deeper and deeper in the market, we started making these iterations and these pivots. And once we landed on this sort of funnel tool, um, you know, we were just seeing all the signs of product market fit there uh, on people just signing up, using it and, and kind of loving it. And that, that included companies like SlideShare, GitHub, Zappos, and many other small and big. So you guys, you did a couple turns. Um, you, you found product market fit. And, and the way you've described it in the blog post hit them. I mean, it really sounds like you guys, you know, at least for a period of time, um, you know, you really captured lightning in the bottle, right? And you guys were executing it against it. I think you had mentioned that you felt like you guys were at least a solid two, three years ahead of the market. Customers loved it. 
um, you know, you had all the core elements and the core pieces of of product market fit and, and really building in the right direction. Let, the, the canonical piece of the, the article or really the premise of the article is about what went wrong, right? So I want you to kind of frame up at a high level. We'll go into some specifics. I had some takeaways as I was reading that I thought were interesting and wanted to get more, you know, author type notes, right? And we can talk through those, but talk about at a high level, you know, from, from that stage, once you've iterated, you have found product market fit, um, you know, what, what went wrong from there? Yeah. Um, so we basically did not know how to prioritize what we did next in a way that made me comfortable. And so what I started doing was basically trying to figure it out with the team in a way that wasn't conducive to them actually helping. And the, the short of it is the biggest lesson I learned, and then I'd love to dig into any areas that you want to, was that I have a tremendous amount of responsibility as a founder to bring clarity to the team. And that's not what I was doing. And the journey of learning that was what I wrote about. And the journey was basically, um, people obviously listened to me when I talked to them, which worked for a while. But then when I started talking to them, I would talk to them in a way where like they were getting the play by play of what was going on in my head instead of the clarity of what they need to do for their job. And uh, our head of engineering, product and engineering at the time, ended up writing this 1300 word memo that explained where I was coming from to the team. So he had to write that to explain what was going on. And we, but essentially it ended up being labeled a Heaton bomb, which was me dropping in very similar to like helicopter parenting type of deal and telling someone something and them not knowing how it fits into their world. And immediately in a lot of cases doing something with it when all I wanted to do was talk to them about it. I didn't need them to go do anything, but I wasn't clear. I wasn't bringing clarity. I was bringing more noise to their world when they, all they were trying to do is their jobs. And that, and, and, and over time, as I was doing that, people started ignoring me. And so it, we, we labeled it as heat and bombs uh, we called it like a drive-by management style. But at the end of the day, the thing that really got me about this post is even to this day, how many people replace the Heaton bomb with the founder name, bomb, or the CEO name, bomb. Yeah. People even have said that they read this whole post in their all hands meeting. And the one reason it really resonated is because I, I didn't just give my perspective. I gave the perspective I heard from my team and the team at the time and what they were going through. And I think that's what really helped people really understand this because as a CEO, as a founder, you don't necessarily know what your team is thinking unless you're willing to go find out. And you almost take it for granted that you know what they're thinking. And I think that's like the crux at the root cause of a lot of, um, startup failure because the company just gets distracted and it's definitely the founder's fault. And instead of getting more narrowly focused over time, companies tend to get more distracted over time. One of the biggest things that resonated with me as, as I was reading the post is, you know, and, and I don't know, obviously the nuances of, of the day to day, but at, at what point in time was it really that 1300 word piece that your head of engineering wrote that, 
kind of gave that aha or that self-awareness moment where you as a leader kind of, you know, there's, you know, there's sometimes when you're a leader, I, I lead a company, we have about a hundred people um, and there, you know, there's a self-awareness, right? So there, there are things that either I say or dynamic in a meeting where, you know, I can perceive that, Hey, you know, maybe things are kind of trending in a pattern or so was it, you know, for you, was there that self-awareness along the way and, and it was a small problem that boiled into a larger problem or was it truly not a self-awareness and it, it took that, you know, 1300, you know, word memo or note or so for it really to kind of flip off in your brain as, aha, you know, this is happening. Here's the thing. Most of the time, and, and I've gotten this sort of question from people, people take their responsibility to the team as more like responsibility to themselves. So I always had this attitude of being self-aware. I think the bigger problem is that as a founder, people won't tell you things. That was the problem. Our head of product engineering knew these things and he saw it for months, but he wrote the memo once he was able to synthesize it and figure it out and also figure out how to communicate it, not only to me, but the team. He didn't tell me he was writing it. He just wrote it and published it. So I've heard from other people like, why don't you just fire the team? And I'm like, wait, if I fired the team, I wouldn't learn. <laughs> and I would, it would just be the wrong thing to do, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't but, think that's the right outcome or the right lesson to pull from this either, just by the way. Said, but, but go ahead. That being said, there are founders who would just fire the team. And I don't actually think there's anything particularly wrong with that. It's just a matter of like, what are you looking for from the team? And how do you want to run your company? And I don't want to run my company in a way where I was the problem. And I was the distraction because if I did fire this team and I brought out a new team, they were either going to be sycophants and essentially do what I say, which wasn't working, <laughs> or they were going to be like this team and I was going to drive them crazy. That's the only two options. And there's only one I had, which is like, well, I, we already have a team and they're great. Like we did all these things, all these wonderful things together. And so in a way I was getting to that place, but I didn't know what the team knew and how they thought. And until I could figure that out, I was stuck. So yeah, the memo did it, but the memo could have gone either way. I could have fired that guy on the spot. I'm curious what the logic is from the folks that say, hey, you know, why, why not just fire the team? Because my, my logical pullback is, is actually quite similar to yours, right? Which is, okay, fire the team, right? It doesn't fix the root problem, right? In a startup and in, in a small business, you're always trying to find root cause, right? So either you get a team that's just going to obey you or you get a team, I mean, the cycle is going to happen right again. What's the typical logic? And and you mentioned, right? You just said that, you know, I don't, in some context or so, I don't necessarily disagree with that advice. What's the part of that advice or, or that framing that does resonate with you? What am I missing? Yeah, so if someone came to me with this challenge and told me that this happened, I'd just be like, what kind of company do you want to be? That's it. What kind of company are you building here? Not what kind of founder do you want to be? It's what kind of, because... A founder wants to be a founder. Like that's typically, <laughs> once you get into it, you're like, you're a founder now, right? Like that's not, that's not the question, but it's more about what's the, what kind of company do you want to build here? What kind of company do you want to be? What kind of people do you want working here? What kind of customers do you want? And once you get into that, I think you can get your answer pretty quickly as to kind of what the recommendation is that someone should do. So if this person wanted to build a company where I'm the leader, and people do what I say, which is totally, honestly, a way to run a company. Like, I don't want to yeah. judge that. If you want to run your company that way, go for it. Or you're going to build a company that has 
self-awareness across the board. So if I don't show it, how's the team ever going to show it? How's the team going to have empathy for the customers? This is the only way I would know, I know how to operate, which is self-aware, empathy, iteration, and all these things. When you read my post, these are all things we were all about already because of the way we built the business. So there was only one option for us. So that's what I'm saying. I can resonate and understand why someone would say, hey, that executive wrote that memo, you should fire him. I totally get it. But I didn't want to build that kind of company. But don't you think that's a different issue? So I, so I, I hear the point about, you know, not layering in judgment around, do you want to run a company in which, you know, folks kind of listen, don't push back, you know, empathy, collaboration, I, I get all of that. But even if, let's say, even if you did run that type of company, right, and you still had, you know, founder name bombs, it doesn't fix the fundamental issue. So you can, you can have a bunch of people that are sitting there listening to you, but that doesn't solve your problem, your, your earlier problem, which you were talking to, which is clarity of communication of, you know, priorities, et cetera. Here's the thing though. Let me pick on a couple companies for a second. So if you yep. look at, well, I won't pick on any particular one, but it's kind of interesting. There was a whole phase of companies having flat organizations, not hierarchical, flat. And all those companies from everything I've learned are either highly dysfunctional or they've changed to a traditional org chart model, or they're just a complete outlier. You know, there's that third option, but those are very rare. And th that's like, let's put it this way. Both paths can work. No problem. It's just, again, like, how do you want to run the company? And I know what you're trying to say, which is like, there's only one right answer, but I got to disagree. No, if you want to run a co company a different way than I did, then you could continue down the path that I was going on. And I don't know if you'd be successful or not, but it it's fine. Many companies are run that way today. So I guess my only pushback on why I'm open to the alternative is because I've seen so many companies run the other way. In fact, we had a competitor at the time that was run almost the opposite of how we were. People were working there with an enemy in mind of a company. We never thought of it like that. And they were scared of the founder. And that company's fine, like it worked. But the loyalty and the humanness, it, it, didn't exist with the founder or that company that's that I can say unequivocally because I've talked to employees that have left sure they that's, that's created they created a culture that caused people to want to leave and get really upset about the company by the time they're gone do you think a company has to have just extremely strong product market fit for that to occur and 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 let me no. Be no. okay interesting no no it doesn't it just needs enough capital in the bank or enough um, gusto or determination, uh, persistence of the way that they're operating from the founders. So basically founders, it, it's really weird and it's really hard as a founder, but like you start a business and you start it because you're going against something. Usually it's going against working for someone else. Usually not all the time, but this is like the only thing I can do. I got to work for myself, stuff like that. So that means that you have opinions. And I think the toughest thing to do is realize when like you should do what everyone else has done forever versus doing something differently. 
So I really spend a lot more energy these days trying to figure out if we're going to do something different, let's make sure it's the right for the right reasons and the right thing to do differently. And for us, the right reasons are always about is, is operating this way beneficial to the customer? And if not, then we're operating this way because of us. Okay. Why are we doing that? Right? So, so I just go through that all the time because the, the organizations and the way that I think about organizations is that they should be customer centric and we should be obsessed with the customer and that involves self-awareness. And if we're not self-aware, we don't get to earn the right to build for this customer. But that's my own opinion. And that's the way I think about it. And if you resonate with that, cool. It sounds like you do, great. But there are many other folks that don't resonate with that. And they wanna operate a different way because they believe they are right. And they believe that they can will people and the company into existence. And I don't think I can will people. I think I could definitely will the company into existence as a founder. I don't think I can will people to change. Yeah, I, I, I buy that. I, I buy that framing, especially around personalities of, of, of kind of self-conviction of what people believe or don't believe. To, if, right? if, I didn't have, if I didn't have a competitor at the time that I saw operating a different way, I wouldn't be as clear about that being a way. Yeah. Because I'm not that way. I, I, don't, I operate more the way I described in that post and what we're talking about. But I saw a company in my space at the same time operating the exact opposite way. The things I heard that that company did to us and competitors and the way they spoke about the market and customers and the business still like makes me sad today. But that company worked. It worked as well, if not better than ours. And I'm not saying it was the management style that made it work. It was probably the market and other factors that you know are not even in this post. But at the end of the day, like that, that's a viable model. It works. It, it doesn't, it's not the only one. It's not the one I favor. It's not the one it's not, I don't want to back founders that favor that method, but it is a method and it works. So I wouldn't want to discount it. Yep. I, I think that's, I think that's a fair positioning. You, you have a pretty interesting framework. One of the things that you did write in the post, which, uh, which ties a bit to this. I mean, I, I think we're, we're now talking a little bit more about managerial style. So the, the intent of this question is a little bit different. You, you put this uh, framework in the post that I thought was pretty interesting, which talked about competing interests as you scaled a business. So you mentioned six things, right? You have yourselves as founders, you have the board, you have sales, you have existing customers, you know, future investors, competition. Um, I'm curious how you thought about navigating through these different elements and, and if there was any, uh, if there was any part of that navigation, you think that contributed to the misdirection or kind of lack of clarity in the way, you know, you guys were running the business. Was it a function of, you know, those different competing interests and not knowing how to prioritize the elements or the nuances that get exposed from those competing interests. I was curious, I thought that framework was, was pretty curious and interesting. Yeah. I mean, look, like it just boils down to what are you bringing to your team from all these inputs? And what I was bringing was the play by play. The team does not need the play by play. They want the synthesis so they can go do their jobs. So I'm actually very transparent internally and I, I do my best externally. But the thing I won't do is as I'm working through getting to clarity, I will not talk to that many people on the team about that unless I need their help. And so the discussions that I have with people are framed very differently than they used to be as a result of kind of what I learned about my own kind of psychology around these competing forces. And they're not necessarily 
competing forces as much as they are inputs at this point. And I didn't write that it's growth brings competing forces, which is kind of the statement about it. And at the time, I believe this was true. Now, taking a step back and looking at it, these are just inputs. And as a company, you deal with inputs all the time. You just have systems of processing them and turning them into business results. And now I treat it in the same way. So I used to get really excited for, about things, whether it's an investor or a customer or a competitor doing something or anything like that, or even the next closed deal or the, the last deal we close and all that. These days, I actually don't get excited in the same way about those things. And I get more excited about the things that come before all those things. So think of it as like either you're driving the car, you're working on the engine. I get more excited about the engine because now I've learned to see, okay, this is the engine. If the engine works this way, we will be able to hit this speed. And I work on that. And that changed my whole framework because I was so focused on working at that speed and going that fast. I forgot that there's an engine in the car and I can't just drive it. And I was trying to drive it. And what that means is sharing everything with everyone, making sure everyone has the same info. But really what people need is enough info, not all the info. What people need is clarity, not your thought process, unless they need to hear it. So I'm a lot more prescriptive about who I share what with and when. And that completely changed how I think about, honestly, startups, period. Because we have such a pressure for transparency because we're a startup and large companies are not transparent. Apple being probably a very good example internally even. And I think that that sort of um, trade-off is not a trade-off actually. It's more about how do you bring clarity to your team and how do you do that regardless of how, all the inputs that you're getting all the time. And yes, there are certain people I'll talk to about certain things in a sort of more fuzzy reality in order to help me figure out what I need to figure out. So I'm just starting to, like now I just ask better questions to the team in order to learn what I need to learn to get inputs from them. So they're just another input as well now, instead of thinking of them as like, um, I need to drive everything forward. No, I don't need to drive, they're driving. I just need to make sure the engine's good. I like that. I especially like the car analogy. What, what mechanically or tactically, because uh, I appreciate that line and that tension, you know, between transparency and clarity, what have you, you know, what have you kind of mechanically employed on that guiding principle to help navigate that thread of transparency and clarity, right? How, am, I clear? How about that? Am, I, am I clear? Am I clear? If I'm clear, I can share anything and everything because I'm clear how it connects to the conclusion or the outcome or the thing this person needs to do. Am I clear is the big one. That's it. I just do that test. Am I clear about this? And if I'm not clear, but I don't know yet, then I'll go ask someone and be like, Hey, and I actually asked Steve who wrote this 1300 word memo, ask him this stuff a lot. I'm like, Hey, I'm thinking about X, Y, and Z. What do you think? And then I get his input, but the conversation isn't like, Hey, we need to go do this right now or hey, or it has no implication like that. It's just more like, hey, I need about five minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever. I just wanna talk through something. Let me know when you have time outside of anything else you're doing, because it's not relevant right now, but I just need to think through this for what I think we're gonna to need to do in a month or two or three. 
And so I just find the right people on the team to have the conversation with. And I caveat the crap out of the conversation to make sure that they don't need to do anything with this and make sure that they're giving me their time when they can instead of now because it's me. And that goes back to the other principle and the other way of thinking about this, which is like founders have an outsized amount of power and responsibility that most folks don't realize when they start a company because that's not how you think about yourself. You're small. You're like two or three people. What power? <laughs> what? what? I, don't, I don't have anything, right, in the beginning. But then it grows. And then now you have like 20 people all of a sudden. And you're like, oh, crap. And I think that's another thing I wish more founders would realize, which is like their words matter. And the clarity that they bring to the table matters more than anything else. Even if they're wrong. If it's clear, it's clear. If it's not clear, it's confusing. If it's confusing, you're going to hurt... The, your company's ability to grow and scale. You had this other element in the piece I found really interesting, which which talked you know beyond just clarity, but it, it, you really focused in on speed. And I want to I want to read the quote from the piece that you wrote. You said, you know, they referring to competitors, right? They will copy what you have and will push past you. If their team is great at copying, their innovation abilities probably won't be as good. But any improvements they make on even just a single piece of what you've invented will help them pull ahead. They just have to be a little faster and improve better than you. Talk a little bit more about that and, and kind of put into granularity why that emphasis on speed, you know, really does matter. You guys obviously lived through it, right? I think uh, a lot of times in tech, we conceptually talk about it, right? But talk through, you know, the experience and how you saw speed really actually change the dynamic in the market you guys were operating in. So I think speed to product market fit is not that important but speed to doubling down when you have product market fit is like imperative. And the reason for that is the second you have product market fit, it's likely that your competitors are going to see it or hear about it or just know it. And that's when they're going to chase you. So you have to be ready for the chase. And oftentimes what it took to get you to product market fit was not the systems, the abilities, the iteration speed, the cadence. What got you there was just lots of hard work, changes, um, intuition, gut, things like that, that I think a lot of people probably don't quite get unless they've seen this process work and get there. And then you look back and you're like, I don't know how we got here, but we got here. But that's the thing. At the next phase of the company, you can't ever say, I don't know how we got here, but we did. You have to be able to say, I know how we got here, whether it's the failure or a success and the systems in place to be able to say, I know how we got here don't exist when you're chasing product market fit. So it's just a, like these days I look at it, I look at our status and, and based on that status of the business and how close we are to fit or whether we're, gonna, we're closer to getting there or further away based on the last few things we've done. I, I, I use that as a gauge. And then the second that there is level, a level of fit, basically we start setting up our teams to be able to operationalize all the things that we need to, even if they're different things than what we did to get here. Because it's likely that you're going to have to do a lot different things post-product market fit compared to pre-product market fit. Tech debt is just an, a simple example, for example. What were some of the most, we, we talked about clarity, right? We obviously just touched on speed a little bit. 
I'm curious what were what were some of the most, if there were any, what were some of the most non-intuitive things you, you think you learned through that experience, right? Things that, you know, kind of meet the surface of the eye of, you know, uh, here's a lesson and it would sound reasonable or rational, but it's actually the wrong lesson or the wrong conclusion to draw. Were there any, you know, non-intuitive things that you, you learned through that process? You don't know when you have product market fit. You really don't. There isn't a moment in time where you're like, now we have it. Whether you're using qualitative measures, quantitative measures, it doesn't matter. You can't just sit there and say, now we have it. So what that means is product market fit is actually a feeling. It's not a tangible milestone. It's a feeling. When you have it, you feel it. When you don't have it, you miss it. And that's what happened to us. We had it. We felt it. Then we didn't have it. We missed it. And we figured out why, and it was my fault. And by that point, like we were pretty late in the game once we had recovered or fixed it or whatever, or fixed the root cause. And so again, I think the non-intuitive thing is we speak of product market fit as a milestone when it's really a feeling. And that's why no one can really explain it. And that's why there's a lot of the debates about it because it's a feeling, it's not a measurement. And any measures around it are just guidance. They're not definitive. And then you can lose it because of all the things I mentioned and the things we went over earlier about speed and iteration. So because it's a feeling, you don't want to lose the feeling. That's what I would be optimizing for. And that's kind of what I'm saying when I talk about operationalizing things. The way to not lose the feeling is to be on top of it and, and focus on the customer, focus on the ones that love you, find out why and go find more of them. It's that simple, but it's not always that clear when you're in the middle of it. I like that a lot. Um, as we round out the conversation hit then, I'm, I'm curious how you know, you're incorporating these lessons in the new company you're building today. We didn't really chat about that in today's conversation, FYI. Um, but you know, when I look at it outside in, every company obviously is fundamentally different, but you know, a lot of these types of threads of things like clarity, so on and so forth, uh, speed, et cetera, transcend you know, specifics in, in organizations. We, we talked about a lot of these lessons at large, but um, I'd love to hear how you're, you know, how you're incorporating a lot of the things we talked about today in, in the new company that you're building. Yeah, uh, it's everything we said. I mean, I know it's a feeling. So I'm just trying to make sure if, if the team has a feeling, if we have the feeling, it's real. And that I'm communicating that to as many people as I can and repeating that and reinforcing it. Whatever the signs I see are, I reinforce it. Um, in, in my company today, I'm still the one with the most experience about building these startups. Uh, I think other folks have experience in a lot of other areas that are really complimentary. Um, and so if we feel it, I'm telling everyone, hey, I'm not telling them, hey, we need to do this next thing or this next thing, because that's what I did before. That was a heat and bomb. This is more like a reminder bomb or whatever. It's just like, hey, we have it. Here's why. We have it. Here's why. Right? Or there's this feeling and it's this feeling and here's why. And so these days, I'm actually waiting for the, for it's not PTSD or anything like that in any way, but I'm actually waiting for signs that help me see or feel that we don't have it. So I can figure out not necessarily what we did wrong, but what to do about that. And so I spend more time thinking about, we have it, we don't have it. What's it going to take? Are we closer to it? Are we further away from it? How does this feel? And yeah, there's lots of quantitative, qualitative measures that you could use, but I'm very much focused on how I feel about the business but that's intuition that's experience 
it's a compounding of a lot of the things that we talked about. Pretty much everything we talked about was spot on to like kind of my evolution of what I'm thinking about these days. But the fundamental truth for me is that product market fit is a feeling. If you felt it before, you're probably likely to know when you feel it again. And if the team doesn't understand fully, that's okay, but they need to understand to some extent so that they can feel it too. So that when we lose it or we have it again, or we continue to have it, they know it. And that's what I'm trying to like push on the team. And a lot of that has to do with a lot of word of mouth, qualitative feedback, pointing to things that are definitively positive and demonstrative of our product market fit. So it's a lot of internal communication around that specific thing because I definitely don't want to lose it, but at the same time, I want the team to be able to recognize and operate with an understanding of it. Because if they do, it's likely we will never lose it. And that's what I'm, that's the work I'm working on creating. Hethan, I, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Um, I, you know, a lot of our, a lot of our listeners follow you and it's interesting. I've had several of them reach out, you know, uh, identifying some of the, the materials you've put out as, as really interesting topics that folks would love to hear perspective on on the show. So I'm glad we could finally get you on and, and chat through some of these topics and, and really excited to continue to the follow the uh, progress of FYI. You guys are building you know, a really interesting business. We'll definitely have to get you back on um, in, in a bit uh, to just, you know, have a separate episode to talk about that business. But, but overall, really appreciate the time and really appreciate the lessons learned that you shared today. Yeah, sounds like a plan, and uh, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad we did this. You definitely asked uh, some questions that no one's asked me about that post, and uh, I was very excited to talk about. So I hope folks got some value from it.